Amen. Let's look at John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6. And I want to show you the passage from verse 22 to verse 34. Verse 22 through 34. This morning I want to preach to you on seeking Jesus. I want you to notice a phrase at the end of verse 24. Where the people, the Bible tells us that the people went to Capernaum because they were seeking Jesus. And I want to show you some things about this and how Jesus responded to their seeking and what Jesus exposed about their seeking, because I want you to see what it means to seek Jesus, because I want you to seek him with your whole heart. Listen, there isn't, you don't come to a point where you say, okay, you know, I prayed to receive Christ as my savior and so now I no longer need to seek Jesus. There will never be a day in this life or in the life to come where you will not seek Jesus. This is, our, this is what Christians do. They seek him. And those who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you are seeking Jesus. I want you to understand what that means. Let's stand together and we'll read John 6. 22 through 34. These are the words of God. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, After that, the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread, from heaven, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can open the word together. Thank you for what Jesus teaches us about what it means to seek himself. And I pray that all of us would be true seekers of Jesus. Please open the word to us this morning so that we would know what this means and give us faith and help us to follow you 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'll never forget the day I was at work. And uh, when I was in college, I worked in a pawn shop. And so we we did basically anything that was of value that we thought we could sell. We would give you a loan on it and uh, you could pay interest on that loan and then you could come and redeem the item. And uh, it was it was a great experience for me. We also would buy things outright. And so typically what we bought were um, popular electronic devices like back in that day, VCRs, TVs, which we still have these days, right? Um, and, uh, and then we did uh, stereo equipment, uh, but high-end usually stereo equipment. If it was a boombox, that'd be pretty nice. Guns and ammunition, well, we didn't do ammunition, but guns, we would do guns. Uh, we were not allowed to do handguns, so only long guns. We did jewelry, gold and diamonds. That was it, we didn't do silver, uh, but gold and diamonds. And we did tools, but a very limited, so we'd do some power tools, but it had to be stuff that we thought would sell, that had good resale value. And then we did Snap-on and Mac tools, and that kind of high-end tools as well. And one day, my boss was doing something, and he sent me to the back and told me uh, to get him a a micrometer. Go get me the micrometer, he said. I said, okay, where is it? He said, it's in the toolbox. And so, and I knew where the toolbox was, so I ran back to the toolbox, hoping desperately that something in the toolbox would stand out as a micrometer. And I was looking all through all the drawers, trying to figure out what in the world, like thinking, think, 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 what is a micrometer? What will a micrometer look like? Will it have like micrometer written on it somewhere? You know how it is. It happened to me several times when I was a kid as well, where my dad would tell me to go get the box wrench or something like that. And what is a box wrench? I don't know what a box wrench is, but I didn't want to tell him that I didn't know what it was. You, you've probably been there before where you're looking for something, but you have no idea what it is you're looking for. You, you can relate to that. The 24th verse tells us that the crowd came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus And they have no idea who it is that they're looking for. The connection between this passage and the miracle of the loaves seems pretty obvious because Jesus references the feeding of the 5,000, which takes place at the beginning of John chapter 6. Jesus has fed the multitudes on the hillside just uh, above Tiberias. Now, if you know, and and see, I can share this with you now because I've been there. The Sea of Galilee is deep. I mean, it's way below sea level. It's it's one of the lowest points in the world. And all around the Sea of Galilee, mountains rise up all around it. All the cities sit on a mountainside above the Sea of of Galilee. And on the western side, uh, the Golan Heights. And then on the northern side is Tiberias. And Capernaum is towards the south, Capernaum, Bethsaida, those areas. But Tiberias, from Tiberias to Capernaum, and my wife and I stood right in between the two uh, where we stayed on the Sea of Galilee. And 
and you look this way and there's Tiberius just draping the hillside and then uh, to the right was Capernaum uh, again just draping the hillside over there uh, you know just standing on the shore Tiberius would be to your right and Capernaum to your left that's that's why you sent me there isn't it so you could so you could hear these things and picture it and so Jesus and his Jesus went up into the mountains to pray after the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible tells us why. Because the people were going to take him by force and make him a king because they believed that he was Moses. Moses had prophesied that there would be a prophet who would come and they thought that Jesus was that prophet. And so they were going to take him by force to make him a king. And so Jesus escaped them, went up into the mountains to pray. The disciples got into a ship, a small boat, and sailed across from Tiberias to Capernaum. Now you should know that the two cities are within sight of each other. You can see the one and the other, but it's still several miles across the water right there. Now just the, everything sits up on the hillsides, and so it's, it's very visible. So the Bible is telling us here that the people saw the disciples get in the boat, but they didn't see Jesus get in the boat, and they don't know where Jesus is. So when the people finally caught up to Jesus, he pointed out to them the reason they were seeking him. Not because you saw the miracles, he said, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. That launched Jesus into a lengthy discourse on the loaves. And the rest of John chapter 6 are about the loaves, about the bread. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but just this one section right here. But I want to point out to you, before I, before I dig into the passage, I want to point out to you that if Jesus were looking for a personal following, if Christ's goal was to gain as many followers as possible, he would have handled this mob very differently than what he did right here. <clears throat> when the people asked him for a sign that they should believe on him, he would have given them a sign. That's what they wanted. They wanted a sign. There was <clears throat> an implied suggestion that if Jesus would give them a sign, that they would follow him. So all he had to do was give them another sign. Even before that, when he fed the 5,000, now remember, there were probably somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 or more people that he fed on the hillside. When he fed them, he didn't have to send them away. If he would not have sent them away, they would have kept following him. We know that because by hook or by crook, they made their way across the Sea of Galilee from Tiberias to Capernaum to find Jesus who had escaped them. Certainly then, they would have followed him and kept following him. <clears throat> he would have given, if Jesus was seeking a following, then he would have given the people more of what they wanted. Which 
is still the temptation for those who seek a following in this world. <clears throat> Pastors seek a following. Churches, ministries seek a following, which explains why churches are so ineffective at impacting our culture in this day. If Jesus sought a following, he could not have changed the world. It's that simple. He would have gotten a following, but he would not have changed the world. Satan offered Jesus a following when he tempted him. See, this is the temptation. And this is the temptation that churches face in this day and age, right? To get a following. <clears throat> if Jesus sought a following, he would not have changed the world because that would make him like the world and you can't change the world if you are like the world, right? Because if you're like the world, then you're saying that the world is good, that this is the way we ought to be, in which case you would not seek to change the world at all. The only way to change the world is for the, to make the world be different than what the world is. And in order to do that, you have to be different. Now, that doesn't mean to be different for the sake of being different. That's not what Jesus did. I want you to see what Jesus did. Notice what Jesus said in the 33rd verse. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He could not give life unto the world if he were of the world, right? Because what the world needed was life. That's what they didn't have. That's why they needed it. And in order to get that life, they needed something they didn't have. If Jesus gave them what they already have, he would not have given them life. He would have given them death because that's what they had already. The word that Jesus used here is cosmos. Cosmos is a biblical reference to the world system in rebellion against God. The philosophy of this world, the values of this world system that rebel against God and reject God. If Jesus were of the world, if he acted like the world and sought to appease the world, then he would give the world more death, more of what they had. He would not give them life. But Jesus gives what the world needs, not more of what it already has. Now this points out the main idea in this passage. It's not a new idea, not new even in the Gospel of John. It's the age-old struggle, unchecked to this very day, the desire for a Jesus who meets my felt needs, who gives me what I want without making any demands. That's the Jesus that the world seeks for. And when Jesus was presented with the opportunity to be that Jesus, he refused. He would not be that Jesus to the world. Jesus knew what was in man's heart. That's a repeated theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus said in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, 
not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. When he said that, he was not making some wild conjecture. He knew what was in their hearts. This was not a wild guess. He was not shooting in the dark. He knew what was in their hearts. All men, the hearts of all men, he knew, including those who were following him here. He knew what they were all about. You know, there's a long-standing joke that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? I've often said that my wife won my heart with a bowl of spaghetti and meat sauce that she made me when we were in college. <clears throat> Jesus fed the people. They ate until they were full. And they wanted to know, where do I sign up? And Jesus was not willing to gain a following that way. Which is why we are blessed to have this passage in Scripture. They were seeking Jesus, but they didn't really know what it was they were seeking. They found Jesus, but they did not know what they found. <clears throat> in this message, I want to show you the real Jesus because I want you to follow him. Not the Jesus of popular understanding. Not the Jesus that they can make a, a blockbuster popular film series about like the chosen. Okay, not that Jesus. A Jesus who, if presented honestly to the world, would not be any more popular than what he is today. Don't let your response to this Jesus imitate their response. Think of this as reverse psychology here. All right. I'm going to show you how they did it to say, don't do it that way right here. But do be instructed by what Jesus said and by the way the people responded. I trust that as a result of this message, you'll be encouraged to seek Jesus, but also that the Jesus you seek will be the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of popular understanding. So I want to start out by pointing out to you the people seeking. Notice the people seeking. The first few verses of our text can be confusing. So bear with me while I break this down, because at the beginning of the text, we see the people seeking Jesus. They're looking for him, not finding him. Jesus sent the disciples out on their boat to travel to Capernaum. That's spoken of back in verses 16 and 17. Jesus sent the crowd away. He went up into the mountain to pray. So the crowd knew that Jesus did not get on the boat with the disciples. And they could do the math. You know, they, they saw uh, one boat go across. There was not two boats. And believe me, in that time, people were very um, focused on what was happening on the Sea of Galilee. They were very aware of it. No doubt they saw the disciples uh, toiling and rowing if they were able to see through the storm, but they knew they were out there on that, on that water. They saw it when the storm came. So during the night, a storm came up, and in the morning, there were other boats 
in Tiberias, but there was only one boat. They could see it. There was only one boat in Capernaum. Several boats in Tiberias hadn't been there before, probably. I mean, we can guess that uh, they were loosed from their moorings by the storm, that they broke loose where they were docked um, by the storm and that the storm drove them over to Tiberias. Remember, the wind was contrary for the disciples as they rode across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, it probably blew ships over there. Since Jesus was nowhere to be found, the people who were left hopped into whatever boats they could find, the ones that had drifted over there, hopped into a boat and headed for Capernaum, where they thought, they figured Jesus eventually would show up. I mean, that was his home base. He lived in the home of Simon Peter, which is right there in Capernaum. I was there um, at his house, right next door almost, to the synagogue there in Capernaum. So it was to their surprise when they docked at Capernaum that Jesus was there already. I suppose they didn't know what else to say. What do you say to our Messiah when you see him? And so they said, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? I mean, this sounds like us, doesn't it? How'd you get here? That's what we say. We're surprised by it. That's what they said. <clears throat> What do you expect of him? Sure, he miraculously fed 5,000, but what else could he do? Their question points out their problem. They found Jesus, but they don't know who they found. They still don't know who Jesus was. As to their question, essentially, how'd you get here? When did you come? Jesus did not answer their question. You notice that? He didn't answer. He's not dictated to by the, by the crowd. If they had known him at all, <clears throat> pardon me, they would not have wondered how he got across that water. They would not have wondered. But that was their problem. They didn't know at all. They were seeking Jesus because he fed them, as he pointed out. Because they saw him as a modern day Moses who could deliver them from Rome. And give them bread every day. Which, I mean, what a deal. Right? <clears throat> they were seeking Jesus, but they didn't know who they were seeking. When they found him, they still didn't know who he was. And Jesus refused to have a personal following. He's not, he's not trying to gain a crowd here. He insists that we seek him, but that we seek him and not something else that we've created in our imaginations. Something else that we want him to be. In so many ways, this whole story reminds us of our culture today as well. <clears throat> their seeking reminds me of our seeking. I doubt that there's been any culture that is more self-centered and self-absorbed than American culture today. And we can't help but see the way 
This plays out in our religious pursuits, in our spiritual pursuits. This is what we're seeking. Something that makes us comfortable. Something that satisfies something inside of ourselves that we feel needs satisfying. We've come to believe that God exists to meet our felt needs. And when God doesn't give me what I wanted or what I desired, then we grow angry with him. You're not giving me the things that I'm seeking. Why should I even seek you? Why should I follow you when you don't do for me what I want done? It's a, it's a horrible kind of presumption on God, but it is common among people in this day where we're used to getting on demand what we want. We've come to the place today where we search for a church purely on the basis of the way it makes us feel Quite often how it makes us feel about ourselves. We're like those people seeking Jesus. They're very dedicated to their search. They waited all night to see where Jesus would go next. When they didn't find him in the morning, they, they went to great lengths in order to find him over in Capernaum. They're seeking Jesus, but in reality, they weren't seeking him. At least they weren't seeking the real Jesus. They were seeking for themselves and they confused that with seeking for Jesus. Then the next thing I want to show you is Jesus correcting them. They are seeking and Jesus corrects them. Jesus corrected them on three points. He corrected their motivation. He corrected their view of him. And he corrected their view of Moses as well. Those three things, pardon me, that Jesus corrected. By the way, notice that Jesus didn't allow the people to define the discourse. He wasn't there to answer all their questions. And he wasn't giving out participation ribbons for everybody who, you know, asked a good question or something like that. <clears throat> they asked him when he came to Capernaum, and he did not answer that. Now, that's just not the way it works. If you're looking for a follow, because especially today, you've got to be transparent. You've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be approachable, right? And that means you have to answer every demand that people make of you. But Jesus didn't. Instead, he pointed out the fault in their reasoning the reason why they were seeking for him. He pointed out the fault in it. You might think that it would be a good thing that they followed Jesus because he met their felt needs. I mean, if you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. It's good either way, right? That's the way a lot of people look at it. It doesn't matter why you follow, just so you follow. You listen to pop, popular Christian music. This seems to be the church's message for today. But it wasn't Jesus's message. He meant this as a rebuke of the people, and it certainly was. When Jesus said, you're not following me because of the miracles, but rather you're following me because I fed you. In the 26th verse, when Jesus pointed at their motive, he uses an emphatic contrast. Notice the contrast. You absolutely, he says, that, that is verily, verily, the verily, verily 
means that this is what you absolutely did. You don't seek me. Absolutely don't seek me because you saw the signs. You seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That's what Jesus said. Now, two things on that. First of all, and just in the language that Jesus uses right here. First of all, he used the absolute negative here. You absolutely don't seek me because of the miracle. Secondly, the word rendered miracles here is the Greek word samia, which means sign. So Jesus is pointing, by the way, they're going to ask him in a minute to give them a sign that he's the Messiah. So before they even ask that, Jesus says, you absolutely are not seeking me because of the sign. What was the sign? The feeding of the 5,000. You're not seeking me because of that sign. In other words, you are not paying attention. Jesus just took five loaves and two fish and fed about 20,000 people with it. Now, if that's not a sign, I don't know what a sign is. I mean, honestly, if somebody has 20,000 people on a hillside and takes a small boy's lunch and feeds all of them with that, and you're not thinking to yourself, this is extraordinary. You are dull. Okay? You're just dull. You're just flat dull. That's, that's the only word I can think of to describe you. You're just standing there like, you know, duh. It's like a long extended duh right there with that. Because there is no way that you can miss this, what Jesus is doing. But he said, that's not why you crossed the Sea of Galilee to find me. You crossed it because... You ate the bread and you were filled. It has not dawned on you that I filled all of you with a small boy's lunch. That's what he's saying here. Sometimes Christians think that if only Jesus would work a miracle for someone, they would believe. It comes out in our prayer request time sometimes uh, in churches. Where people will, you know, so-and-so is sick. Can we just pray for a miracle so that they'll see that God is good and that they'll believe and be saved? That's not how it works. It's not how it works, folks. Um, sometimes people escape a terrible tragedy by the grace of God. It's always by the grace of God that we escape tragic circumstances. They'll escape it. And they'll wipe their hands and get a smug look on their face and say, see, it wasn't that bad. I knew I wasn't in that much trouble. And they'll go on their way, more hardened against God than before. No, signs never bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. They never do. We're dealing with people who just witnessed one of the greatest miracles ever performed. And we discover when we look at the passage, we discover to our shock that this great miracle actually undermined their faith in Jesus. Didn't make them believe more, but distracted them so that they didn't believe at all. 
in Jesus. It made them superficial. It turned their heart from their from the true bread, the bread of life, and turned it instead to the temporal bread, to their felt needs, to the meat which perisheth. I wonder sometimes if we've lost our ability to say to the Lord, Lord, you are all I want. You are all I need. I wonder if we've not come to the place in many cases, many, many cases, where we're saying, Lord, if you can't get me this thing that I really want, then I don't see any reason to follow you and I want nothing to do with you. I heard a Christian say, what kind of God won't give me this thing that I really want? Listen to yourself if you think that. What kind of, the next word, God won't give me what I want? I'll tell you what kind. The kind who is God. That kind. When you follow God, you should remember that he is God. That's why you follow him. You are not God because he is God. The God who doesn't give you everything that you want or demand of him or ask of him is the kind who is God and works according to his will and not yours. God isn't there to meet your demands, to appease you with miracles and gifts. He is God. And if God is there to meet your demands and give you your wishes, grant all your wishes, then he's not God. He's your servant. You are God commanding him. We aren't seeking the bread of life, but rather the crumbs that the world offers. when We seek for these things. We want our best life now. That's it. We want all our mistakes erased, all our problems solved. We want a lifetime supply of bread to boot. So we seek Jesus. Only we're not seeking Jesus. We're seeking bread. We're seeking wish fulfillment. We're seeking answers to prayer. We're seeking desires. And Jesus we see as the means to getting those things, to having what I want. Jesus rebuked the people for the wrong motivation in their pursuit. Labor not, he said, notice it, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. That's what Jesus says to people who followed him because they ate of the bread and were filled. He corrected also their view of him. He corrected their motivation and he corrected their view of him. They saw him as a modern day Moses, able to feed them in the wilderness and deliver them from Rome. And those were the two things that they wanted, food and deliverance from Rome. Jesus showed them differently. He made a demand that they were totally unprepared to follow. He demanded 
that they believe on him. That's what he demanded. Notice that. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't seem like all that much of a demand. Oh, but it is. It is. He demanded that they believe on him. Let me explain. Jesus told them what to labor for. He uses an emphatic contrast in the middle of verse 27. Look at it. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but, there's a strong contrast right there, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Then the people ask in verse 28, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? So Jesus tells them, labor not. Don't work for the meat that perisheth. Work, he says, instead for the meat that endures to everlasting life. They ask him what work that is. What work, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus had shown them the appropriate goal for our work. The appropriate goal is the meat that endures for eternal life. Okay? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what he showed them. The appropriate goal for our work. Treasures in heaven. But the people wondered what works God requires in order to have the meat that endures. What do I have to do so I can have my best life now? What do I have to do so that I can be fed? That's what they're asking. So they're missing the point. Again, not a surprise. I'm just pointing out to you the way that they're missing the point. The surprise is in Jesus' answer. It's no surprise when people miss the point of what Jesus is saying. But Jesus gives a surprising answer here. He doesn't tell them that God doesn't require any works from you at all. That's what we would say, right? Oh, no, no, no. No works required. Nothing. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything. That's what we would say. But Jesus told them that the works God requires are faith. Faith. That ye believe on him whom he has sent. Do you see that in the passage? Because that's what he says. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. That's the meat that endures to eternal life, which you are to labor for, to believe on him that God has sent. It's a shocker. They were not prepared for that answer. They were prepared to follow Jesus anywhere and do whatever he said, especially, especially if he gave them bread for life and would deliver them from Rome. Because those were the two things that they thought were necessary to making their life their best life ever. But now Jesus is talking about himself. He's speaking of himself as if he were more than a modern day Moses. Yes. Jesus claims to give more than bread. He says that he gives the bread of an everlasting life. That's what he says here. Now, <clears throat> this is really something. 
how the people respond to this. <clears throat> First, uh, let me point out something from the critical commentary. And when he seemed to raise his claims even higher still by representing it as the grand work of God, that they should believe on himself as his sent one, as God sent one, they saw very clearly that he was making a demand upon them beyond anything they were prepared to accord him and beyond all that man had ever before made. Hence their question, what dost thou work? Notice that in verse 30. They said, therefore, unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? So, Jesus, so Moses never demanded that the people believe on him. That's their problem. They want to follow him. They think he's a modern day Moses. He'll feed us and deliver us from Rome. Moses delivered them from Egypt. Jesus will deliver us from Rome. Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. Jesus will do the same. They see him as a modern day Moses. And Jesus is not going to be followed as a modern day Moses. Jesus is saying, I am more than that. And that the work God requires of you is the work, the labor of believing on me. And they're not prepared to put their trust and confidence in Jesus, to commit their very soul, their eternal soul to Jesus. They're not ready. So then they didn't just balk at this. They scoffed at it. They denied it in their hearts. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? They asked him. Clearly, they mean to say, you have not earned that, Jesus, by anything that you did. They didn't stop there. I mean, that's bad what they said. But not bad enough. They went on to say that Jesus had not done anything half so great as Moses. Notice. <clears throat> Notice what they said in verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're talking about Moses there. You fed us for a day. A meal. One meal. Moses fed us for years, 40 years in the wilderness. That's what they're saying. <clears throat> it's interesting because a few verses ago in verse 14, I want you to notice in verse 14, they decided that because of the loaves, Jesus was the reincarnation of Moses. They were fine with Jesus being Moses. Until Jesus said he was more than Moses. And then the people said, no, you're not. You're less than Moses. That's what they said. You could almost hear them. Like um, if you that are older might remember Lloyd Benson. Who in a debate with Dan Quayle. Uh, when Dan Quayle compared himself to Jack Kennedy. Lloyd Benson said to him. <clears throat> I knew Jack Kennedy. You, sir, are no Jack Kennedy. <laughs> And it's like the people here, the older ones in the crowd are saying, I knew Moses. You, Jesus, are no Moses. He did so much more. He fed millions, not thousands. 
He fed them for years in the wilderness. You fed us a meal on a hillside. So Jesus proceeds to shoot down their Moses idol. Jesus is very emphatic here. Literally, not Moses gave you bread from heaven. He says it emphatically. It was not Moses. Moses didn't feed you anything, he said. My father fed you. And he feeds you now. And what he feeds you now is so much better than what he fed you then. You know why it's so much better? Jesus doesn't tell them that he's the bread of life yet. That's in the next passage. But Jesus does tell them that if his father gives them the true bread from heaven. And that the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. By the way, he uses another emphatic contrast in verse 32. God feeds his people with Jesus. And he does this in order to sustain not just their temporal life, but their eternal life as well. Through Jesus, God gives life to the world. And here we see just how superior the bread of the New Testament is to the bread of the Old Testament. Chrysostom observes that the manna gave nourishment. He uses the word, the Greek word, trophe, but not zoe. The, the manna gave trophe, not zoe. Trophe meaning nourishment, zoe meaning life. Manna fed the people. Jesus gives eternal life to the people. At the beginning of the message, I pointed out that world in this verse translates the Greek cosmos, the world system in rebellion against God. I find that interesting because there are those who will say that God doesn't love our world or that the world God loves is the world of believers, the redeemed, the elect. They say that God has Nothing for this world except damnation. But we see here something very different than that because Jesus has life for the world. Not damnation, not condemnation, but actually salvation that he has. God is gracious. He gives bread to the world. And the bread that he gives to the world is the bread of life. And he is that bread. So the third thing I want you to see here is the people responding. Notice how the people respond. The people responded to Jesus in two different ways. They demanded a sign that he was the one they were to believe in. And rightly so, Jesus ignored that demand. He refused to give them a sign. If, I mean, feeding 20,000 people on a mountainside with a boy's lunch is not a sign enough for you. There won't be sign enough. For you. D.A. Carson said Jesus refused to be domesticated. I like that. He would not be domesticated. He was not tamed. Instead, he used a familiar phrase for the second time in this passage. 
he used the phrase, same phrase, in verse 26 and in verse 32. He said, verily, verily, I tell you the truth. Amen, amen. It is an emphatic way of saying what I'm about to say. You better listen to. And then he pointed to himself as the one who feeds the world with life-giving, life-sustaining bread. And that bread is himself. And when he said this, they said, listen, look. They said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Was that a sarcastic request? Was it skeptical? Or was it sincere? I know this. It was an ironic request. They asked for the bread as if it were something other than Jesus, something that Jesus could supply them like he had given fed the 5,000, but not like it was something that he was. This is the irony. They asked the bread of life for the bread of life. They asked Jesus for himself. And the irony is that they didn't know that. They didn't realize that that was what they were asking. When they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread, there was the bread standing there offering himself to the people. And they didn't know it because of their sinful, rebellious hearts. It's the same reason in all ages that keep people from coming to Christ and feeding on him and believing on him. To this day, people want Jesus for the benefits that they might receive. A lifetime supply of answered prayer and fulfilled desires. Who wouldn't go for that? Right? But Jesus is not your personal make-a-wish foundation. Collecting the donations from all over and just giving you whatever wish you desire. He is Savior and he is Lord, and if you will not have him as Savior and Lord, then you will not have him at all. He will not be wished on. He will be believed on. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. So long as you're wrapped up in having things that you want and that you assume Jesus will get you if you're true to him. You will be empty. Don't look for the things he gives. Look for him. Seek him. Not the things you think you can have by having him. You don't have him in order to get the things he gives. You have him because he is worth having. He is worth giving up everything else in order to have him. That's what we seek. That's what we want. When you have Christ, you have a treasure that's beyond compare. Nothing else can compare to it. And none of the things that Jesus gives will ever compare to the value, the worth of Jesus Christ himself. Otherwise, look, 
If you seek anything else, if you're just seeking the things that he gives, but not him. That's like seeking after a a needle in a haystack. Actually, though, not seeking a needle in a haystack because seeking a needle in a haystack is seeking for something different than hay. Right? When you seek for the things that Jesus gives instead of for Jesus, you're seeking for a piece of hay in a haystack. I know that the haystack is full of hay, but I'm saying you're looking for a precise piece of hay, an exact piece of hay, and that's hard to find. And I'm saying that because what you're seeking really is just more of what you already have. When you seek for the things that Jesus gives, you're just seeking for the same thing that you have already in the world. All these things. All these things that in and of themselves will only serve to turn your heart away from God. Having them will never, ever satisfy you. Never. Did I say that emphatically enough? It won't satisfy you. In fact, all those things that you accumulate will have the purpose, will will have the effect on you of holding on to an anchor in very deep water. It will only serve to pull you down. Let go of those things and your desire for those things, your quest for those things. And seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't waste your time seeking to pad your pockets, to to line your life with things that you think Jesus is necessary for. But give it up, your own life also, and seek the Lord. Seek him.